Welcome in to Chasing Interesting. It's a podcast that has been a long time coming. It is a podcast that has one rule. It's got to be interesting. Okay. Got to be interesting to me. That's it. That's the list of rules. There is only one person I wanted as my first guest, and uh, he's not the person sitting across from me. He is my father, which we did episode zero with. Okay. Uh, Outside of that, episode actual one, there was one person that I wanted to talk to, and that is the man sitting across from me from the undefeated in ESPN, formerly of the Washington Post, and most importantly, maybe my best friend on the whole freaking planet. I appreciate that, Gregory. I'm glad to be here, man. You know, this has been a project that you said you wanted to get underway for a while. So, you know, it means a lot to me to be maybe not guest zero, but I also did not begat you. So there's that. (laughs) I'm happy to be here. By the way, we're at major right now. I was going to say, so first, first question ever in the history of Chasing Interesting, where are we? We are at a place called major. This is a streetwear and sneaker boutique. We're in the showroom right now. It's in Georgetown in D.C. My man Ducky is the guy who owns and runs this joint. If you're looking for any hot gear whatsoever in the District of Columbia, this is the place to go, flatly. I feel like I'm going to walk out of here with an extra pair of shoes and less money in my wallet. I mean, that's basically what happens every time I come, (laughs) so I would not be surprised at all. But yeah, man, this joint, if you're looking for hotness, this is what they do. They used to be across the street in a slightly smaller facility, but now they got the big spot. So you were, try, you were trying to figure out what, what used to be in this space. Did you figure it out? I did not figure that out yet. You know, in Georgetown, so many different things turn over that you almost forget instantly where everything is. But it's always been a high fashion district and major are the ones who are doing it the best right now. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I have to say, like, I can't believe that my first ever episode is in Georgetown. Oh, my God. Blocks and enough. blocks from the enough. rival. But it's Grow all right. George, I've been in D.C. long enough that I can embrace Georgetown as a very cool neighborhood with a terrible school with a I'm basketball glad. team. In it. I'm glad. Okay, let me rephrase. A very good school with a terrible basketball team. I didn't in go it. to Georgetown. I, I know just you like the Hoyas. Yeah. <laughs> You are DC born and bred, and that's one of the things I want I want to talk about mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but frankly, this this podcast is generally going to be a conversation about race. Um, it's a conversation between a white guy and a black guy, but um, a white guy whose views on race and whose uh, view of the world has been shaped by the black guy sitting across from him, maybe more than any other person that I know. It's part of why you are one of my best friends because you have taught me about the world in a way that I didn't know I needed, um, and. What, what's been cool, I think, over the last couple of years, especially as our friendship has grown and, and I've matured and, and we all continually mature, yep. like I've been able to give some of that back, I think, in certain situations where you feel comfortable enough to bounce things off of me too. Absolutely. So, um, I do want to get to that. And I think that'll be the, the, the main thing and, and maybe the most interesting thing. But there was, there was something else, a conversation that I've wanted to have with you since, I guess it was last October, late, mm. late October specifically. Oh, I know where you're going. Um, and that is, you, you cry when the Washington Nationals won the World Series. Yeah. And, and when we talk about our relationship and, and you and, and people understanding who you are, being from and of this city is, is one of the most essential parts of it. Why did that championship as a sports moment mean so much to you? And I know part of this story um, is, is nothing to do with sports. No. Well, I'll start at the beginning, which is that I am 30, I'm, all, I'm about to be 39 years old. Is that right? I don't yes, know. I turned 39. 30 this weekend. I'm so, only responsible for my The age. reason I say that is because when I was 10 years old is when my parents got divorced. And, you know, for me, it was one of those situations where I was the happiest little boy in the world. And then all of a sudden, everything changed. You know, my life was completely bifurcated. My parents were now openly sort of 
hostile to each other and the things that I found fun in suddenly were very grown up and different. My dad decided to put me in baseball camp at the Catholic University of America here in DC and Northeast. And I loved it. You know, I was the smallest kid in the camp, but there was something about the game that spoke to me. And we never even played outside. You'd play in the gym, you'd play on racquetball courts, you'd go to the cages inside. And, you know, I I used to cry every night behind the batting cages because I was just so torn up about the fact that I was going to have to go home, you know, and reface my reality. But I always wanted to go back. And my love for the game started there. So by the time I got out onto the field for Little League and for that summer camp, I was blown away. I say this all the time. It's the first place I ever fell in love. And my connectivity to baseball, I ended up playing, you know, up on through RBI, which if you don't know what that is, it's the Reviving Baseball in Inner Cities program Mm -hmm. that Major League Baseball started. I played on the first two teams here in D.C. And I stopped playing after that. You know, I stopped playing after that, after high school, because I didn't really have the sort of parental support. It was difficult from a just a structural standpoint to really get out and do what it takes to sort of play in college. And I didn't really, because of the nature of the game, I didn't really have it in me to try that hard. You know, did I want to go to some D3 school in Pennsylvania? You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? For four years of my life with frankly, a bunch of white dudes who didn't necessarily understand me. I didn't, I wasn't ready to do that. And my love for the game was never lost, but I stopped playing. So as I got into my career. Well, so let me, let me stop there for a second to go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. What is it? Cause you played other sports too. You played yeah. soccer. I'm sure you played, played basketball, soccer, you played, basketball and baseball it, in high right. school. Yeah. So what was it about baseball that gripped you in an emotional way that has stuck with you this long? You know, I think what it was is that I was never good at any sport that required me to be a non-team player. Tennis wasn't going to work golf. No thanks. But baseball has both. You have the individuality element when it comes to being at the plate and you also have the team element. And my Little League coach, John McCarthy, when I made the 1993 Northwest Little League All-Star team, he sat us down and he said, this is how you play. And not just in terms of the education on the field or the instruction, but this is how you carry yourself on the field. This is how you're a teammate. This is how you pick guys up. This is how you run your operation. And it stuck with me. It was something that was really appealing to me because there was an order. There was a sense. And I'm not saying that that means that, you know, I'm one of these guys that's like, oh, you don't do this. You don't do that. You're not I just Brian mean in terms of, No, I just mean in terms <laughs> of the way the game moves. You know, it really appealed to me from, right. a, from a structure standpoint. And that was always the thing that I liked most about it. I always felt like I knew what I could do. And, you know, when, when I was a kid, I always felt like everything was chaotic. The baseball field was not. So you get to college, you start your journalism career and... I get to college. I start my journalism career. And this is what year and then relative to the Nationals so this even is, coming into existence okay, as well. So when I got that. to school, when I was a kid, I asked my father, I said, you know, how long do you think it's going to take for us to get a team again? And mind you, my dad is from DC as well. And for those of you who don't know, DC lost not one, but two major league teams. Mm-hmm. The Texas Rangers were a former Senators franchise and the Twins are a former Senators franchise. And to take that even farther, the reason the Twins are a franchise is because the owner then did not want to have black people at his games. Flatly said that later on down the line. And a team was taken from us for terrible reasons. And so when I asked him, I said, how long do you think this is going to take? He was like, dude, 10 years. I mean, I waited. I was 12. Mm -hmm. It took 12. So by the time I was in college, they didn't have a team yet, but we knew one was coming. 
Right. And so that was one of the more exciting things in the world for me because they were also going to play at RFK. And RFK obviously is a stadium where Washington's NFL team plays, played, but it's also where DC United played and where I saw so many national team games, men's and women's in mm-hmm. soccer. Mm-hmm. And that stadium meant a lot to me. So when they came back to RFK, and I got to see a team with nationals across the front. I mean, I'm getting a little emotional about it now, just thinking about it. It was like I, the thing I had waited for was real. Right. And it was, it, it was what I love. I probably went to 40 games that year. And the first time I walked in there, I just broke down crying because I, I just never, as much as I believed my dad, I wasn't sure what it was going to look like when it happened. And for it to happen in the place where I learned to love sports, it was overwhelming. And it still kind of is talking about it. One of the messed up things about what we do professionally is that we don't get to cheer anymore. Right. Um, I remember listening to Ryan Rosillo talk about this when I was in college and he and I wound up having a conversation about it either when I was an intern or in one of the times that I was able, lucky enough to hop on the phone with him afterwards is, is he was really great to me early in my career. Um, we have conversations and I, I remember telling him like, yeah, I don't know you talk about losing your fandom and that's already happened to me. And he's like, man, cause this is a guy, you know, for those that don't know anything about Ryan, like, he would watch every Red Sox game oh, you know, yeah. well into his, his late 20s, hardcore. like hardcore Boston, uh, or at least Red Sox sports fan. And like, I, here I am at 21 going like, yeah, I don't really care that much anymore about right. any of my teams. Um, and it's just, it's part of the business. It becomes where you root professionally for people that you know are good people. You stop rooting for laundry, um, but also all the while understanding that that rooting for laundry in a almost... Not reckless isn't the right word. Nonsensical way, yeah. Um, because it, it does make no sense. I mean, outside of civic pride, but what is that at the end of the day? You know, it, why why do we do this blindly? Because it feels right, and it's something we can be proud of. Exactly. And um, you lose that, so you get to this point where all of a sudden, this team that you weren't quite sure was ever going to exist is not only in existence, but getting ready to, to climb the highest mountain in the sport. And that, and is it just as simple as all the memories start flooding back or it's, is it, is it then even more? It's deeper than that because of my family. I have a younger brother who mm-hmm. I was his little league coach. He liked baseball because I loved baseball. I taught him how to play. I coached him. He was a Nats fan. And that generational connection is something that would have never happened without that baseball team. Mm-hmm. I'm closer to my brother now, who is a teenager, than I ever would have been if baseball wasn't a thing. I got to interact with him on a level that was different than anybody else did. I'll never forget his last Little League game. He had the best game of his life, and they lost. And I had to carry him off the field crying. He was that upset because he knew how much he'd put into it, and he stopped playing. He didn't come again, play again until he was in high school, which if you know, baseball development happens in between those ages. Mm -hmm. And so for him to come back to it, because I had built and he had built his own love for the game, that is when it really became a different emotional level to me. And talking with him about ball and him deciding he wants to play on a travel team. And then when the World Series finally came, I had the opportunity to get tickets to the first game. And... I used to go with him to games. I used to teach him games. And when we walked down Half Street, Craig, and it was just me and him watching a World Series game, it was, you know, I I still kind of, I can't believe that that happened. I didn't care that they didn't win a game. It didn't matter. You know what I'm saying? We were were there, and he was there, and it was just, you know, it's one of those things where when you build things, and they grow, and they turn into something, 
you know, that's what you do it for, but you never know how it's going to turn out. And particularly in a city like this, man, when I was born, where I was born, life expectancy was 25, bro. That was it. And that wasn't the case. And we got to pass down a game through the generations. And that to me was part of it. And so by the time they finally won it in the manner that they did, and I went to all the games, I, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was a lifetime of work put into watching a pro team. It's the reason why you root. It's not just for the wins. It's the shared experience. But there was a two generations, three generations of baseball fans that had got nothing like that. And I got to see it up close. And you work hard to get what you want. You work hard to say what you want. But sometimes when you work hard to see what you like, there's a feeling that's different than any other feeling. And that's what happened in Houston that night in game seven when Howie went out, clanged that ball off the right field foul pole, and the cheating Astros managed to go home with nothing. It was, it was a full circle moment for me. Yeah. I mean, the, the connectivity through sports is, you know, for as much as you say it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, that, is, that is the emotional connection. And everything, and this will probably wind up being a theme on this podcast, like the more you can create an emotional connection to something, the stronger it is. If you want it, it to, to break it down into a science, if you want someone to buy something, if you want someone to buy this yellow pair of shoes, right. but that, that yellow has an emotional connection to someone, or you can create that as a salesperson, you're going to be more more inclined to buy. See, my dad, my dad in episode zero taught me that. <laughs> uh, my, my dad, who wrote the sales book. Um, but every, every decision we make is, is in part an emotional decision. Um, and I was thinking about that this week too, and the connection and, and the connectivity emotionally of shared experience yep. with all this stuff with Kobe. And I know you were out in LA yeah. and you were able to be in the building for the memorial, but um, I don't know if you saw me tweeting about this the other night, day, but I don't know when the, I'm going to actually put this out into the world. So not going to expect that everyone listening saw my, my tweets from what was it Tuesday night or Monday night or whatever okay. it was. But I, I watched, I was watching it um, after the fact, I didn't get a chance to watch the, the Kobe Memorial live. And after Sabrina Ionescu's speech, I literally got up off my couch. It was nine o'clock at night, got up off my couch and went to the gym and started shooting around. And in that gym were two other guys that I'd never met before. We had one shared thing. We had the ball. Yeah. Started playing 21. Another guy walks in, play twos. I, don't, I doubt I'll ever see those dudes again. Right. But that shared experience of sport, in, in our case, playing, in, in your case, connecting with the city that you love, or even deeper, your family, yeah. your brother, like that's, that's the thing that in sport, I think, makes it special and why the unreasonableness of us cheering on a child's game is actually not that unreasonable to begin with. No. And the shared experience is basically why I do it now. Everything else is a bonus. The Mystics won the NBA title, WNBA title. That was fantastic. The Capitals won the Stanley Cup title a couple of years back. That was fantastic. But I had already made the decision that the reason I do this is to be with the people who love it as well and not just for the team that I like to win. There's a lot more people who don't like sports as much as they think they do. They just like being on the right side mm -hmm. of victory. Those people annoy me, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> My point is, though, is that that shared experience, you know, when it comes back around and it really makes you feel good, it's, it's really something overwhelming, you know, and we've gotten lucky in DC the last couple of years. And, you know, there's work that's done with that in terms of everybody who's contributed and so forth. But, you know, that, the Kobe thing is interesting that you mentioned that in because there was another level of connectivity there, which was family. Mm -hmm. Hearing Vanessa Bryant talk about not just Kobe, but Gigi, and she described how and this is the moment where I really broke down, Craig. She said, look, basketball was one thing. 
But the thing she was most proud of was being able to go to the high school that her older sister went to. She knew she had gotten in. She never, of course, got to go due to the demise. But when she said that, I thought to myself, you know, you hear an age of a kid and you're thinking, okay, that's young. But when you think about where your life was, eighth grade, never even got to go to high school. Yeah. But Vanessa said she had gotten the satisfaction of knowing she had continued the family lineage. Bro, that's when I was like, oh my God, like that is a unit. And she said, you know, you got Gigi, baby. I got them down here. We're still the best team. Like the analogies made sense. And it was so powerful and so poised and so dignified that a lot of people learn from that. Not just Laker fans, not just Kobe fans, not just sports fans. A lot of people learn about what this whole thing is all about. And I commend Vanessa Bryant for that because I could relate to it very much so. Yeah, there's, oh man, that speech was so good. We could probably do a whole hour on that. Yeah, it was fantastic. All right, more with Clint Yates in a second from Major, Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Hope you're enjoying the pod so far. I wanted to do this little interlude, a mid-pod introduction almost, to tell you more about what this podcast is and what this podcast isn't. This podcast isn't in association with the fan, the spirit, anything. It's even trained with the best. I mean, in a way, it's associated with all of them because it's really just me. And I've been doing this for almost a decade now, this radio, podcast, media thing whatever this has become. And I've met so many interesting people and had so many interesting conversations. And now I just, I want to have them in more depth and I want to have them in a recorded way that shares so much of what I've learned over the years about life. And it's not just about sports. It's not just about media. It's not just about the bubbles that I've mostly existed in professionally for the last decade. It, it expands beyond that to conversations I've had in locker rooms with guys that are the types of conversations of why I've been able to earn the trust over people over the years because just a, I'm, I treat them with humanity and I'm a real person too. Like I'm not just a guy with a microphone out for a story. I'm out with a microphone trying to meet people and learn about the world. And I hope that's what comes across in all this. And, and the last thing I'll say too is what I learned doing this first one is these are going to be better off as conversations. I asked Clinton too many questions. I tried to ask questions that, in parts I knew the answer to instead of having a conversation and letting the conversation lead to knowledge. It's anti what you learn in journalism school. But this isn't just some journalistic venture. This is this is about having real life conversations. And um, you'll even hear at some points where I, I even say, like, I don't even know how to ask the question because I know what I want to talk about and I can promise moving forward that we're just going to talk. We're just going to have conversations. Yeah, there will be questions and probably questions that will get asked of me uh, by some guests. But I, I'm excited to have these conversations, excited to share with you. So I appreciate you listening. And here's the rest of the conversation with my man. We're at Major in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. That's Clinton Yates. I'm Craig Hoffman. What's this up, kiddos? is the brand new podcast, Chasing Interesting. Big, heavy, concise question, Clinton Yates. <laughs> okay. What is blackness to you? I think what blackness is to me at this stage of my life is most plainly described as something to protect. In that, we talked about the shared experience earlier in the show. Shared experience is something that black Americans specifically have had to experience for the sake of not just fun, but survival. 
And I don't know that I was old enough to truly understand that for what it meant until I got to a certain age. And I realized that what made me uncomfortable about certain people in my life, whether they be friends, family, or colleagues, is that they were not protecting my blackness in that we deal with a lot of different things than a lot of other people, whether it's the looks you get when you walk into a place, whether it's the fundamental structures of America that put us behind, whether it's being taken for granted as entertainers of any sort. All of that, once you reach a certain level of success, it becomes very apparent how much it shows on your face. And so, for example, when I first started doing Around the Horn, I didn't cut my hair for a year. And the reason was nothing to do with style. I simply wanted little black kids to know, if you've got the talent, you can make it that far and own yourself in terms of what you look like. And when I finally cut it, people were like, oh, they must have come down on you. I was like, nah, man, I was doing that on my own volition. The producers and everybody down there at ESPN and Around the Horn, Eric Rideholm Productions, everybody, they knew that. And they respected that. And that, to me, is the best part of working with a team like that. It's not about the takes. You know, it's a fun show. I get it. We score the show. There are wins. But to me, that part is the best part. I get to be the realest me. And I don't know that I would have been able to do that without a certain amount of time. A lot of people think they can do a lot of things. But once you finally learn about yourself and you're able to actualize that and you can feel safe doing it, as a black person, that's rare, dog. You know what I'm saying? There are so many things that we socialize ourselves to control and not exert because it can be viewed as weaponizing and so many different things along those, along those lines that we don't even realize we're holding ourselves back on. But when I felt like I was in a safe enough space to express myself as a black man in America, I didn't look back. You know, I never did. What was the, the, I guess the threshold that got crossed to feel safe? Because just for background to, to reverse engineer yeah. this question, like you worked at some really traditional places that I'm sure probably had limitations, um, whether it be the Washington Post, WTOP, um, and not necessarily that all those were bad. You know, some of those weren't specific to blackness, no, but yeah. some of those are just like, hey, this is the way a whatever is written and we all do it the same way. But the further you got in your career, the more it became less about, I don't want to say less about the work, but less about the, the strictness of reporting or whatever it is and more about you being you. Yeah. Um, well, I, I joke with people all the time, like, hey, what do you want to be? When people ask me this question, it's like, I want to be like Clinton. I want to, I want to figure out how to get paid to just be me, right? You know, how, I, how do I get paid to do that? And, I appreciate and the more, that. The more that you've been able to do things that are based off your personality, when did you feel comfortable and what made you feel comfortable? And that might actually be a more important question. What made you feel comfortable to authentically fully be you? I think it was when I really got to WTOP. I was writing a newsletter and then I was writing a column and then I moved to the sports section. And so there were a lot of things that I was doing that were based on other people's thinking and how I was reflecting that back to the world. When I got to be a daily commentator on WTOP, the most popular station in the country, not in the, well, most popular station in the city, highest billing station in the country. Mm -hmm. Real facts. Important. I was the money. given free reign. And I knew there was responsibility, but it's because I had worked to a certain point. And so when people started coming up to me, hey man, heard you on the radio. Like, keep it up. Mm -hmm. 
that to me was a life-changing moment because I realized it wasn't just a responsibility. It was an honor. And once I was able to embrace that, I said, you know what? I wouldn't be doing this right if I was just doing it for somebody else or what I thought they wanted to hear or what I thought was going to please my bosses. I just had to speak truth to power. And I know that that's a bit of a cliche, but it's what I was learned. I was what I was taught to do by both of my parents. They worked in international development. You know what I'm saying? They were, they were about that action when it came to representing people who couldn't speak for themselves. And so speaking my truth was something I didn't, I mean, I didn't learn until I was daggone near 30 years old. And so by the time I got to ESPN, where there was a little bit more free reign and a lot more topics to talk about, you know, I, I was ready. And all of that had to do with the community that we talked about earlier being a part of me to draw upon. I knew who I was speaking to. I knew who I was representing. And once it became clear that I had a platform, I had no choice but to be myself. I would have been doing a disservice to not just me, but to everybody. So when I talk about topics like this, you're the person I have in mind. I don't think that's a secret to you. Um, You know, I did the topic the other day on the radio about, um, oh, now I'm going to forget her name, which is just horrible. Uh, The coach that the Redskins hired, the female coach. Um, Drop her name in later. Yeah. Um, But as I'm doing that segment, it's like, do it the way Clinton would want you to do it because you're the person that that shaped my views on race and, and the way you as a black man walk through the world and experience the world. I think of, at the same time, I'm thinking of Rhiannon Walker, yep. um, our friend and, and colleague at the colleague, Athletic, yeah. um, who broke that story and uh, who I think of how she goes through the world as a black woman, a black queer woman, yep. in fact. Um, and it, trying to use my voice and my platform in that moment to explain the best I can as a straight cisgendered white dude, yep. uh, what, you guys would want me to say in that moment so that people understand to create empathy um, in that moment. And so that, that journey, I'll remember where the Senate started, which makes it hard to end it, but that's, that's the fun part about these conversations. You get, you get winding and twisted. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the point generally that I, I wanted to, to make, and I don't know that this lands in a question or just a discussion, but um, there was a time in my life I wasn't capable of that, not because I didn't have it in my heart or anything, but because I, I didn't know any better. And, and I think, and I'm actually curious if you remember this conversation, it was a text exchange, um, and it was right after the election in 2016. And I'm basically asking you, like, well, what can I do? What can I do? Like, you know, every black person in America, probably, well, not every black person, but most black people in America were feeling threatened yep. um, in a way that was real, um, is they, they turned on TV and, and saw people uh, be empowered in ways that we thought we were done with. <laughs> If country. I remember right, I told you, don't talk to me. Well, that don't was, talk to your people. That was part of, part of what you said. Um, but the, the thing that made me so mad at the time until I calmed down and realized, holy shit, you are something beyond right, <laughs> is that you said, it's, it's not my problem. Like, what I should do is not my problem. The, and, and, and when I've had this conversation with other people, specifically other white people, since then, the point I make is, it's not, the burden shouldn't be on the oppressed. Right. And if you reframe every conversation about race, gender, sexual orientation, any kind of group, and my one small sliver of taste of this in terms of religion, of especially being a Jewish guy who grew right. up in the South, um, if you think of it as oppress, oppressor versus oppressed, it changes the game. It changes the equation. And, and that burden shouldn't be on the people who are having to deal with the real shit as opposed to the guilt of 
someone who wants to help. Well, that's where it becomes hard because frailty is a very real thing that threatens a lot of black folks. If people feel that the system is getting upset, in theory, they would like to change things. But when it comes down to practice, Mm -hmm. that's a different matter. And that's where I figured out that, you know, when I was younger, my tone was much harsher. I would break people off. But then I realized I need to develop a more instructional tone. Not because it's going to, not because it's necessarily going to sort of make anybody feel easier, but because it's more effective. And, you know, when you can, when you can teach people, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, this is what it is for me. You can either accept it and live your life or you can fight with me about it. It doesn't change my reality. Mm-hmm. Once I realized that that tended to be a more effective way of communicating, I think a lot more people started understanding who I was. They were like, oh, you're not just out here trying. I'm like, no, man. Like, I'm telling you this so that you can understand it and apply it to your life, not because I'm trying to punish or mock or otherwise insult anybody, because that's not effective anyway. You know how I know that? Black folks are on the other end of that crap all the time. You know what I'm saying? And so right. that's exactly the point is that that's what I'm talking about as well in terms of that, that generational trauma that we've got to process and find a way to still move on, survive, and make other people better, even if it's not our responsibility and it shouldn't be. Oftentimes, it is the survival tactic we need the most in order to make sure that, A, we can achieve, and B, we can stay alive. You know? And that's kind of the hardest part is that a lot of people don't realize how difficult that can be sometimes when you want to just scream or you want to punch somebody in the face, which is stupid, or you want to hurt yourself. You know what I'm saying? All of those things are natural feelings that are difficult to fight when the unfairness is so obvious, whatever the case may be. Forget politics, you know, just in general, sociologically. And that has been the hardest thing to grapple growing up and growing through this is how not to fight all the time and still feel like you're being an effective and frankly, a respectable black person in America. See, and that's, that's such the interesting part about it to me is like, and I have this struggle internally of thinking about how we process all kinds of fights in this country. Um, you know, cause at the end of the day, you want to persuade hearts and minds or change hearts and minds and persuade people to come over to your side in an effort to change our reality, right. our collective reality. Um, at the same time, like we said, the burden shouldn't be on the people who are already suffering to, to do that. So it's like, you know, it's, it's the same thing specifically, probably the best example of this is protest. Protest has extreme power. Um, if, if people go and shut down a highway and you're mad about the highway being shut down, you're kind of missing the point. Bingo. But then again, if the protesters thought is I'm trying to change these people's minds and all you're doing is pissing them off because the highway is closed. Is that the most effective well, way? Well, that's like, where the word of privilege comes in. Right. You know? Exactly. And that's where I was going to go. But I'll, I'll let you pick it up. We should well, be able to say no, it better I mean, it's just, it's just that people don't understand that pointing out privilege is not an indication of harm. You know, it's, it's hard to explain to a lot of people who don't understand that because they're not the richest person they know that they have not had any advantages. You know, and that sometimes is where I really actually, in fact, do empathize with a lot of white America is that they don't understand because you're not taught that way. You're taught that everything is a level playing field and that this is a meritocracy in America. To a certain degree it is, but look at the most old traditional systems we have. Nepotism is the number one thing that gets people through and being a dude is the other. You know? Facts. And if old white slave owners and all of their friends are the ones that created all of the things that matter in this country, well then 
that trickles down. And I think it's very easy for people to disconnect from that because they say, oh, well, I'm, my parents never owned any slaves. That's not the point. No, nobody was saying that right, was the point. Right. You know? The point is, is that the residual effect of years of what I'll just call economic terrorism on some level that was chattel slavery is still around. And you, know, you can argue about that. You can say that people are complaining. Oh, how could you say that when people are making millions of dollars? Well, you know, that doesn't mean that everybody's making millions of dollars. and doesn't mean that folks don't deserve more. You right. know? And that's, that's, that's very hard for people to wrap their heads around when they are not at the position. But that, again, is a whole other discussion about soft supremacy that I'm not really going to get into here. But you can look well, that up not? on your own. Well, because the point is, is that what that is is different for every person. And for all of your listeners, just, just understand that term, what soft supremacy is, which basically means you otherwise think you deserve the best. Why? Well, that's for that person to think about. Why is it that you think that somebody is getting something they don't deserve? Why do you think that somebody is sort of living above their means? Why do you think that somebody is talking out of turn? Why is certain things a sort of stay in your place argument? It's because in our society, we've ingrained ourselves with this notion that a lot of things that are non-white are lesser than. And that's just kind of how a lot of things operate, whether we realize it tacitly or whether we're not, we you know, outwardly say it, it still affects a lot of the things we do, even for the most well-meaning people. Along those lines, how is blackness inclusive? Well, I think the main thing is that we don't have a choice. You know, the spaces that we exist in we have to learn how to include. We have to do things that make other people happy. Because otherwise, why are we there? Quite literally. You know, when you think about society and, you know, sort of what a lot of us are asked to do in order to survive, I mean, it's inclusive because otherwise, what would it be? We can't perform for ourselves. We can't just teach ourselves. We've tried those things. There are systems that exist that allow for that, but we don't have to. That doesn't have to be that way. You know, we could, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of describe because that's so not a part yeah. of who I am, but. Well, let's like, just say this, then what's, what's the, because, you know, again, it's like the, well, because I, I think that we're not going to, if someone's listening to this and they're racist and like, there's nothing we can say that, that is going to be like, oh yeah, actually I love black people. Sure. Um, yeah. But like there are the well-meaning folks who could do better. And I guess, yeah. I guess the, the way I would then ask the question then, and I hate the way I'm going to ask this, um, so I'm telling you that up front, but I can't think of a better way to do it. It's like, what's the proper way to indulge in black culture, to, to show appreciation for, and in that way is be inclusive, but also res be respectful that it's not the, like, because I'll say, I don't even know no, no, the question mark is. Let me, let me answer this. Well, yeah. It's going to sound a little, this is going to sound harsher than what it is, but it's pretty simple. Invest and respect, mm. which more harshly said is pay us what we deserve and leave us alone. <laughs> right. Which, right. you know. I knew look, the answer to that better you, you than I could the question. Like that, yeah. that sounds harsh, but no, it's, the reason why it matters is because so many things are just not given the chance that other things are given. And then when they are successful, whatever they may be, spiritually, financially, academically, they're then interfered with to the point that they are forced to sort of assimilate to things as opposed to being allowed to grow in their own lanes. If we don't know how anything can grow in its own lane, well, then 
None of us can get better. The reason why we want equality, and by we, I mean American society, is not just to make one group better. It's to make everybody better. Mm. That's literally the point. But if you don't believe that that's what the nature of civil rights are, well, then it's difficult to rationalize giving somebody something that you don't have yourself. Yeah. And that's a really, really hard thing because that gets back again to the socialization of a certain level of soft supremacy. And look, again, do I walk around angry about this kind of stuff all the time? No. But just think about how Hollywood operates and think about the reactions to things like the Oscars when people can't handle the fact that a foreign film won Best Picture, they're freaking out. Yeah. Like, why is that a problem? Right. You know, it, it shouldn't be a problem. And, you know, it's very difficult for people to deprogram themselves from what they consider fair because that's what they've known all their lives. But that doesn't mean that it always was. That is the hard part to explain to people that things have been messed up for a while and will continue to be if we are more concerned about keeping up with status quos than we are with making everybody better. Yeah. And rather than try to sloppily turn this into a question, I'll just say this, like, it's okay for people to have their own stuff in yeah. any given culture, in any, any group of people, but specifically with black people, white people just, as soon as something happens, they want to go grab it. And I, I will leave names out of it, but I, I think to so some notes that you got or specifically a note that you got after you, I think it was earlier this month, Black History Month maybe, uh, or was yeah. it something closer to the beginning of the year where you said something around the horn about my people referring to black people. And someone was like, why do you have to be exclusive? Why do you have to not, like, why, why can't you just keep it? it, it, it one right. of the things I love why about you is how, everybody? is everybody. It's like, it doesn't, it's okay. Yeah. Like, you don't have to be involved in everything. Not everyone has to be, have their hands in every single pot. And I think that's, it's not that someone isn't well-meaning when they say th- something like that because they look at it as like, oh, we're just trying to be one big happy family. And it's like, yeah, but did you ever in your house just want a little time alone with your brother? A little exactly. time alone with your dad? A little time alone with whoever it may be? And beyond that, I think that there's this notion that the fight for equality is somehow rooted in revenge. That's not the case. <laughs> right. Bro, right. Nobody is trying to fight. We're trying to have what we feel we deserve and did deserve. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult for people to see it that way because, you know, there's a very famous phrase that says, when people of privilege are confronted with equality, they feel like the oppressed because their mindset is not one that allows them to believe that they were ever at a point of advantage. And so when you tell me we all want to be one big happy family, well, why don't you start by asking the people who have been oppressed the longest what that would make up? What would that look like? And if you're so scared of us, fear of a black planet kind of thing, that if we get anything, we're going to get revenge, then yeah, that creates a problem. And there's a lot more people who believe that than they're willing to admit even to themselves. And that's understandable because it's very difficult. As a man, it's the same way. That happens all the time. You know, and so you get into the different intersectionalities and things get tricky, but, you know, the bottom line is, is that as a people, and I say this as the American people, we don't have a choice at this point. We're not going to live in a society that upholds what people thought worked before. You can just see that, you know, in terms of how we interact with the rest of the world. I consider myself a global citizen. And while American sociological politics matter to me, my goal here is to get along with the globe, 
Right. And yeah. The way to do that is to make us better as a nation. Why would we not want that? Right. It doesn't make sense to me. The lines on the map that we draw are fake. Like you go down to, we, we can walk probably not that far from here and be in different states. We can be in Maryland. We can be in Virginia. We can, you know. And if you want to get into the details yeah. of how those lines are drawn, yeah, that's yeah. a whole other level of violence that, you know, is real. Right. And, that, and, that, and that's the point is that the things we view as just basics were in fact created under circumstances that were very, very difficult and very hard to rationalize if we were living in 2020 then. Yeah. There's a lot of things that if we started over and just societally, we, we would do things differently. Yeah. We could build it from scratch. I mean, I'm grateful as hell that I've been able to be in this position and talk about these things and had enough education and support to feel confident discussing them without attacking people. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you got to break somebody off, but that's because they're being foolish. But I'm not here for that. Like I said, I'm here for instruction, not destruction. Yeah. And on the white people's side of this shit, like if you have privilege, your job is not, it is to bring people up too. And I think that's the other thing that people get twisted about privilege, in, whether it's racial, religious, uh, gender-based, sexual yep. orientation-based. It's like, you know, you don't get to lose your status of being able to walk through the world. And the easiest, one of the things that I remember hitting me like a ton of bricks after Trayvon Martin was shot. I remember walking at night, being in a hoodie and re- going like, damn, I don't have to fear anything. Right. Because I'm a white guy. It's as simple as that. That is the easiest illustration of privilege that there is. viewed as a threat. You do not have that, pr- that privilege. No. And let me tell and, you something. And it's not, it's not that, I shouldn't have it either. It's that you should. And, and I think once people realize that the, that privilege is not something that all of a sudden we have to go to the part where people are being oppressed. No, the goal is to bring people out of oppression into a reality where we all get to be that big, happy family because we don't have people who do crazy stuff and hate because of differences amongst us when we have the similarity of humanity. You're right. And I'll, I'll end on this. Because, you know, it's an important point, but every single day I get up, I think about every single thing I put on my body and how it's going to represent to somebody who doesn't know me. And that's not something that most, I mean, every woman thinks about this, obviously. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that is a part of life. But for me, you know, what, you know what I do? Like, I can tell you this. There's a reason why I do one single thing every single day. And I'm not actually doing it today because whatever. This is going to sound weird, but I carry tote bags. And like, that sounds funny, but like, when I carry a tote bag in somewhere or like around town, people don't look at me the same way they do when I don't. People assume that I'm a relatively smart person that like has it together. But because of the specific nature of that bag, People are 100% friendlier to me who don't know. Think about that. Think about the kind of signals that otherwise people have to deal with and pick up on and how you thus then acclimate yourself to wanting to be safe all the time. Mine, no back. That's it. It's weird, but it's real. I love you whether you're wearing a tote bag or not. <laughs> I love you too, Craggery. Thank not you buying for you any it. shoes. <laughs> what about that jacket over there? No, not no? that either. Okay, all right, I tried. Uh, I appreciate you. Always, man. Thank you for coming on. All right, uh, next episode of this podcast will be out sometime in the next month. I don't know who the guest will be, but we're going to find out. And the one promise I can make is Happy that- Happy listening, kiddos. 
it'll be interesting. <laughs>